From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Eighty-seven percent of the physicians that are looking for jobs are passively looking. They're not. You only get a small percentage, even though you want to advertise on the job boards. A small percentage are actively looking and say, "I'm looking right this minute," and that's usually about eleven, twelve percent of the physicians are looking that way. So these passive people that you find through social media, those are really, really good places to fish. That's Tony Stadehar talking about the importance of succession planning with physicians. We'll hear more from Tony in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. MDVIP's fee-based wellness program provides a better, more personalized primary care experience for patients and physicians alike. Learn how your group can increase patient satisfaction and loyalty by visiting mdvip.com slash patient loyalty. As a healthcare organization, you routinely check your patient's health, but when was the last time you checked the financial health of your business? Don't let bad billing processes keep you from hard-earned revenue. CareCloud's free revenue cycle assessment uncovers billing mistakes so you can see how to claim every last dollar. Get your free assessment by visiting carecloud.com slash assessment. Our guest today is Tony Stadahar. Tony is president of Jackson Physician Search. He was also a featured speaker at the recent MGMA Leaders Conference, DX, where he spoke on successfully navigating physician succession planning. And he discussed findings from the recent JPS MGMA research on that topic. Let's go to that conversation now. I just want to ask you one big overview question first. So I know that we work together, uh, MGMA and uh, JPS, on um, this physician succession study. So what is your take on why so few medical groups have these formal succession plans? What's holding them back? Is it just a time bandwidth thing or what, what else is going on here? Yeah, you know, there was a day and it wasn't that long ago, probably 10 years ago, where it was just kind of standard operating procedure to always get medical staff plans done and usually you would use an outside firm to do that. There, there are several firms out there that, that provide those kind of services. Um, and it seems like people got away from that for a while. I think they're starting to re-engage and understand the importance of this because I think these are becoming a bigger topic. I mean, since we launched this kind of investigation a couple of years ago, this had never really been talked about. And I'll just tell you my opinion. And my opinion, of course, is based on you know, doing this for so long and my friends on both sides, my uh, friends who are executives, longtime executives and people who are physicians. And really, when you ask them, it's I, I've had really close friends who I think would know better and have worked with me long enough to know better. They're like, well, yeah, but if we if we talk to them, if we ask them what they're thinking, we're worried that they're going to think we're trying to force their hand or get rid of them or 
put them out to pasture, whatever the case may be. Um, on the flip side, as I, I think I mentioned this earlier, physicians are going, yeah, I might retire in a couple of years, but as soon I don't know, it might be two years, might be five years. I don't, I don't know, you know, pan, a pandemic could hit. I may, I may have to practice two more years because my 401k went down, who knows? But uh, they feel like once that they, they give that feeling to the administration that they may be held to that timeline. When in reality, the administration probably doesn't feel that way at all. You know, they're they're just wanting to get some kind of time frame to know how to plan for it. So you've got both sides that are apprehensive or worried about speaking with each other because they don't want to offend the other one or they don't want to blow their situation. And so the the answer is nobody talks. Nobody gets into the discussion when in reality, it should be something that's wide open and it's like marriage counseling, I mean, you, you know, you, you want to get in and let's have this open discussion and it's going to help us be better in the long run for both of us. So, but I think it's, you've got to be, you've got to be thoughtful and strategic in how you start that conversation and make sure they understand why you're doing it and that we don't want you to leave. Matter of fact, when you are ready to retire, we would love to have you. If you want to work one day a week, three days a week, you let us know. We will accommodate this, but we need your help. And I know you want this to be uh, helpful for your own patients. You don't ever want to leave your patients in alert. So let's work together and just get an idea. Right. And communication is so key because in one of your recent studies, you found that there's just a flat out a communication gap that when you ask questions of administrators, they went, yeah, we have a plan in place. And then you asked the physicians, they went, there's no plan in place. So yeah. talk about that a little bit and how to, how to continue to close that gap. Yeah, and that's really pertaining. It can work on all of this, but it was really pertaining to the retention right. uh, survey. And, you know, it was amazing how many people said, oh, yeah, we got a great retention plan in place. Right. And then, you know, I mean, something like 60, 60 to 70 percent of administrators said, yeah, we got a great retention plan in place. And about 13 percent of the physicians said, yeah, I think they've got a plan in place, but I'm not sure. And the rest of them go, yeah, there's no plan. Uh, right. So, you know, the, I think the way to solve that is when you're building a retention plan, I believe that everybody who goes into anything like retention plan, a comp plan, they think they're doing it and they think they're doing something really good for the people that they're building it for. But where they're missing the missing the mark is that you can't assume what the physicians are wanting. So where your mistake is made, if you don't involve them from the beginning, in your retention or comp or things like that, you don't get buy-in from some of the leadership or enlist a pretty significant portion of your committee to get them involved, they're not gonna buy in. So they're gonna say, yeah, you made up a plan. Well, thank you. That has nothing to do with what I need. So that's where I believe, again, it's, it's a, you said it earlier, it's miscommunication because mm -hmm. uh, it's not that, you know, there's no administrator that wants to do something that's going to be onerous and make somebody want to leave. So why build a retention plan that's going to drive them away, right? But in some cases, if you don't enlist that help, it almost can drive them away because they're going, oh, well, yeah, great, great retention plan. It's really helping me a lot. Right. I want to get to something that blew up a little bit in the chat area. So I'll, okay. one of the things that's so interesting to talk to you is every time I talk to you, you've been out in the field and you've talked to practices and you've talked to physicians and you've got great stories. Sometimes they're positive. Sometimes it's some challenges out there that need solutions. Let me share one with Trish uh, that she just shared with us. 
One of the options we provided to physicians is that if they want to retire, we have an up to three-year planning agreement that they sign and assist with that succession and recruitment. However, we pro provided this to a physician. He didn't want to sign it. And then he gave us his 90 days notice instead, according to his contract. This blew up a lot of people all said, same thing happened to me, same thing happened to me. Again, you've been talking about communication, but how do you develop a program or a process here where this doesn't kind of blow up on you all of a sudden and then you're scrambling? Sure, and that is a tricky situation. And, um, you know, I've, I've not encountered that very often, um, but something to think about. Now, I'm not gonna criticize anything because I think, I think first of all, kudos for having the forethought to, to try to do something. Mm -hmm. trying to get in a position to work this. Um, I think, and while there, there may very well be physician leaders on this call, on this webinar as well. So I'm trying to think of how to say this because I don't want to generalize too much or make people feel that, uh, that they have different things. But, but physicians in large, with my experience, and I know a lot of them, they think differently than most people with MBAs. Um, so, you know, they're thinking, they think much more emotionally. And in many cases like this, it's all, a lot of it's in the messaging. And my fear in doing something where a contract is offered to help them do this, my fear is that in, in it can be looking like what I talked about earlier, where you're actually trying to say, okay, good, you, you're making the effort and saying, yeah, we want to help you. But at the same time, I want you to sign this agreement that basically says, yes, you're going to retire and this is going to happen. And all of a sudden the emotions come in where it's like, oh crap, this is becoming real now. I'm getting yeah. pigeonholed. Now I'm, I, I have to do this. And they panic a little bit, I think, in some cases. Now, I don't know if that's what happened with Trish or where, you know, what, what the situation was. If I, if I had an ongoing conversation, I might be able to dissect it a little bit more. But I think those kind of things that can happen, um, I think it depends on contract. If you're thinking contractually, it probably means that there's something that you're giving them in return for what they're doing. So it, it really kind of depends on what the situation is. Now, if you're basically bringing in where I think contracts come into play is if you say, look, you're retiring here, we can help you even if you want to work part time or something like that, but we're going to help in whatever purchase of your depreciated assets if they're working outside the group or they're doing something like this or helping with some kind of retirement fund or you're giving something of value to them then yeah, you kind of have to get a, a contract signed. But I think getting, otherwise getting them to sign a contract just because we're going to help you transition, that's kind of a, that's kind of a slippery slope. And I, I think a lot of physicians will be offended thinking that, that even though that's not your intent, right? I mean, right. nobody intends to offend them. Nobody wants them to leave in 90 days, but uh, it, it's, a, it's a fine line you walk. Okay. You got have, more, it's almost like more of like a, a gentleman's agreement, or we want to work towards this. And we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to have meetings monthly or every, every quarter, mm -hmm. you know, if it's three years out, we'll meet quarterly. If it's one year out, we'll meet monthly or weekly uh, to see how the, how it's progressing. But we, you know, we'll need your help, but shoot, as far as I'm concerned, doc, you can stay here for 
three years after that if you want. It's, uh, you know, but we just need to have some guardrails and some safeguards up. Right. And this is, you've touched on some of this, but Sally brought up an, uh, something that's happened here. She said, any ideas on helping physicians feel comfortable to share their retirement plans? She said she's seen an extreme reluctance with concerns about that and how it will impact their leadership position. So how do you open up that transparency where there is a comfort level? Yeah, I think one strategy, and this is just thinking off the top of my head, but, uh, you know, because every situation is a little bit different. Um, but if that's a concern and you're dealing with people who are in leadership roles, I think you can, you know, everybody has, everybody has egos. And I'm not saying doctors has any, have any bigger egos than I do, uh, but everybody has their own ego and it, it, they need to feel wanted and useful. And especially if they've been around for a long time in a leadership role and a physician in the community or in the group, they feel uh, almost like an ownership and, and feel like, you know, they're an integral part of it. So helping them understand and feel like, you know what, they this is probably going to be the biggest test of your leadership that you've ever had. We need your help more than ever. And we believe we really need you to help us as to build the future leaders who, whether it's three years from now, five years from now, you know, I always throw out those terms like they can think that it could go on longer. It probably won't. But in their mind, if they've got say, oh, well, they're not trying to force me out. But gosh, one of the best legacies you could help us leave is helping us build these future leaders and appeal to that ego or that sense of ownership that they have within the group or the organization. Um, it, me personally, if I were doing it, that's the way I would go after it. Because anytime you're doing this, you've got to assume that somebody on the other side is what's in it for me. And some people it's financial, some people it's just a feeling or ego. So you've got to kind of know your audience and know what they're doing. But to me, that's the way I would go after it because Otherwise, yeah, you there's it really is a fine line. I make it sound like it's so easy. Oh, yeah, you should go have these open conversations, right? But uh, but it's clearly it can backfire sometimes if you don't have a good plan and know who you're talking to. And it may be that the people you're talking to, you may have five people who you feel that are in that boat, but it may be five separate types of conversations that you have based on their personality and what you know of them. You know, if they've been there for a long time, you probably know their personality, their ego, and, and what motivates them and drives them pretty well if they've been with your group for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. Sandra has an interesting question here, a follow-up. What are your thoughts on incentivizing physicians to proactively reach out to administration one to two years in advance of retirement to allow for more thoughtful planning and recruitment. Yeah, I think it's, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with ever giving any kind of incentive. I mean, um, you know, there, I, I don't believe that, and I'm not an attorney, but I don't believe there's any star clause or issues that would prohibit that as long as it's something that's reasonable because you're, you're, you're almost can come up with some type of incentive to say, you can help us save this much money and make a smooth transition by doing this. And for that in return, you know, besides just, you know, really helping the group and being, as I said earlier, building your own legacy, you know, gosh, that's worth some, some extra compensation to us as well. So, you know, and, and, and again, the, the thing I want to keep hammering home, because I really want people to understand this because 
people, it amazes me how many people are surprised that the physicians who say, yeah, I'm done, I'm retiring, that still continue to work, but they're not working with you. So if you have those conversations and talk about that kind of future, and we want to leave this open as a possibility, because we'd love to have you stay, even if you want to slow down, you know, those are the kind of things that are also good incentives. But I think if you tie in some kind of reasonable incentive to say, this is going to cost you some time to help us thoughtfully go through this. I think that I don't, I certainly don't think it'd be a bad idea. Okay. Okay. Uh, Vincent's asking a, an interesting question here. Any advice on how to engage younger physicians to become interested in partnerships? We have several younger physicians interested in only employment, not partnership in the private practice. What have you seen work there, Tony? Yeah, it's an interesting transition, Vincent, that um, you've, it's a whole different mindset. You've got, first of all, a different generation of physicians who are not bashful to say, I just want to be employed. And most of the reasons that the younger uh, physicians coming out are feeling that way, it's just because of where we are in the world today. You know, the, the, uh, the dreaded work-life balance phrase, um, you know, everybody wants to do that. You don't have the doctors who are going to work 80 hours a week anymore until they, until they drop dead. That's those days are long gone. So physicians already come out with that idea because it's been talked about now. And just to put in perspective, I'm trying to think when this would have been, thinking how old my oldest daughter is. So probably a little over 30 years ago is when a lot of this started happening. Uh, it really was uh, the, the talk about work-life balance and where I really saw it begin 30 years ago was really an OBGYN and female obstetricians had become really, really a big thing. Everybody had to have one, right? Everybody's saying, oh, they're great. We need them. The women love it. It's, but, but they were starting to see that immediately when they were coming into the workforce and saying, I don't want that type of lifestyle where I'm going to be work, working and never seeing my family. So it started back then. And over the years, it just keeps progressing and it keeps becoming more of a topic. And all of a sudden you say, okay, now the normal is the younger physicians coming out, they'd be fine if they're working four days a week. You know, they don't, five days a week, what are you talking about? Four and a half, maybe, but four would be the best. So, you know, now in many cases, you're taking in one and a half to two physicians to take the place of somebody who's retiring because they worked at a whole different pace and breakneck pace. So most of it's lifestyle, but then add on top of that from whenever it was, uh, we started the ACA Obamacare and all of these rules and regulations, you become a partner now their perception is that you have responsibilities that you have to face that are required by the government and oversight and all those sort of things. So I think, uh, I don't think that young physicians don't want to do it. I just think you have to be prepared on how to package it and sell it and why it's an advantage. Um, you know, what are the things that come along with it? It's not that you're just buying into the group and now you got a percentage or something like that. It's like, what does this mean? What does this mean for you? Remember what we said earlier, what's in it for me? They're going to be looking at it that way. And if you know that they're kind of predisposed to say, I want to be an employee. I want to do this at the end of the day. I'm going home. I don't need any, any headaches. I don't want to be worried about hiring people. You know, for them, simple, less money, they're fine with that. But now you've got to figure out how do you transition into saying, I've got to be able to capture some of these people. Eventually you have to be leaders or become partners or, or the group's going to, you know, you're, you're not going to have any partners. So you just got to think about how to do it and identify the ones that you think might be the most likely 
to, to jump in on it if they're if they're sold properly. But it is, I, I agree with you though. I think it's a selling thing. I think you've got to, You've, uh, it's crazy because, you know, 20 years ago, the I bet if, if Vincent's been in this group that long, that um, probably 20 years ago, you had people clamoring to say, well, what do I have to do to be partner? And now it's like, you got to talk them into being a partner. So you've gone from just how do I limit how many partners coming into how do I sell them now? So uh, just think about it as a sales pitch almost and what it means and have it diagrammed as, or, or bullet pointed as to uh, here's the advantages. Here's what you get. This is what comes along with it. The ownership and the transition and what it means when you retire, you know, just thinking through something that would be appealing to, to at least a couple of them, you know, try to get some percentage. So you have your future leadership building. Right. Love that. Um, Amy brings up an interesting point here. She's it, it, the cool thing in watching the chat area is the engagement, uh, the administrators have with one another. And it's really a cool thing to watch here, but she's asking one of the other uh, people here in the chat, do you have a mentoring program that has kept them engaged? So tell us a little bit more about the success that those mentoring programs can potentially have with succession planning, Tony. Um, yeah, I, I think it's identifying those people who have been good stewards um, one of my very good friends, um, he'll probably do a, a talk with us one of these days, um, he's been in the same group for 30 years, head of anesthesia, um, just stand-up guy. I mean, it's, it's almost like nobody can be this nice, uh, you know, but, but he is, and he's a great physician. He's always been very thoughtful and helpful anytime, and they identified him a while back to say, if we could clone this guy 10 times, we would. And so they brought him in and, and, and they actually, he did it for like six, seven years without getting a dime, wasn't getting paid anything for it. And, but they asked him if he would come and help people to help them figure out how to become good stewards and things like that of, of the organization. And the organization actually went from probably a hundred doctors to maybe 400 doctors over I don't know, 15 years or so, but um, he's still there and still a big part of the group. Now he's the head of the board for the group, but, and he's still practicing anesthesia full-time, but what they found was somebody like him with his demeanor and what he does to be able to talk to young physicians, just get to know them, spend time with them, bring them in, bring them under his wing and say, look, what are you dealing with? What are the things that are bothering you? I mean, it's paid off in spades for them and their retention in that group is phenomenal. And it's not in what I would call the garden spot of Georgia, um, but, uh, but it, it, I mean, they, they've done a great job with it, but mentoring makes them feel very important. And I believe helps with their retention that he feels like an, he feels like an entry has felt like an integral part of that group and a critically important part of that group by them asking him to do it. And the people that he's put under his wing feel just as important and, uh, and, you know, just feel like valued that somebody would take the time, their own time to do something like that and help them through uh, difficult situations, startups, personal issues. It's all across the board. So, man, it's, it's a great deal to do. You just got to make sure you find the right person to do it. Don't, don't get somebody with a glass half empty. You know, they better be about three quarters full or, or you know, a little a little bit of uh, smoke and hopium in, in their system. So <laughs> for sure. Um, 
I want to provide everybody with sort of an action plan and start looking at that. So when you break that down, Tony, and you've talked about it some already today, but what should succession plan planning activities include? What is part of that action plan? Yeah, you know, uh, as I said earlier, like recruitment planning, uh, you know, finding replacement physicians to kind of fill those service gaps and uh, that that will result from physician vacancies. Some some are expected, some not. Um, but most often, those kind of things are retirements. So just planning ahead. And listen, this doesn't happen overnight. You're not going to go from saying, "I don't know which physicians are retiring," to coming up with this dialogue, and all of a sudden you're going to know every plan of every physician that's retiring. It's not going to happen overnight. So you have to anticipate, and sometimes you have to go as a percentage of what you've seen over the previous years and just assume that you need to be planning to start recruiting on those, regardless of whether somebody shares it with you or not. Um, it may put you in a position where you may have an extra doctor on staff who it takes a little longer to get full if the physician you're thinking is gonna retire doesn't, um, but that's certainly one area that, um, you, know, that you, you need to be thinking about. Um, enabling, you know, those later career physicians, as we discussed, to kind of share their expertise and mentor those early physicians. We just talked about that. Um, and then, you know, the retirement planning, just supporting those physicians and how they can decrease their practice and, and maybe not work as hard, but still re be respected and made to feel like they're needed. Uh, because a lot of times those are key physicians if they do want to stick around and work two, three days a week. They're great at mentoring too. They've got more time. They've got more time on their hands. And usually the funny thing is they think they want to retire, but once they do, it's like, what do I do with myself? <laughs> or more importantly, my spouse goes, what in the heck are you doing at home? So, um, so you know, you, you've got some bandwidth and some good potential talent that a lot of people take for granted or just don't think about. Well, Tony, it's so interesting you say that because Mary Jo here just said, we had one physician who would give notice of retirement and then retract his notification three times over the last few years. He was truly embedded in the community. Uh -huh. So we finally came to an agreement to a one-year incentivized contract to help mentor his replacement. I love that. Uh, I I mean, know. You know, and, and honestly, uh, you know, it's a, I know that sounds like it's, it's, there's a part of that that's probably a bit aggravating but at the same time, what a good problem to have. I mean, I would, if I'm you running your practice now, you know, I'm, I'm not a uh, practice administrator, but if it were me, I'd way rather have that problem. Somebody who wants to keep sticking around, especially because it sounds like he was a valued doctor and somebody who brought value to the table. But um, it sounds like a brilliant idea of saying, yeah, you know, because you can get into the situation I discussed earlier where, yeah, we're still recruiting and now we've got possibly more physicians than we need. And we're struggling to get the new person ramped up to do enough business to cover their salaries. So you, yeah, you, you eventually, you don't want to kick them out the door, but if you can give them some incentive like that, that's great. It sounds like he bought on it. So. Mm -hmm. So we've got time to address a couple of more things here. So it sounds like a lot of the people, at least in this room, do have plans in place. Sometimes they're not working as well as they want to. So what can practice administrators do differently to either better anticipate or even prevent that turnover or, you know, just 
continue to work on that culture, work on that team that they have in place already? Yeah. You know, the biggest things that I know, I've hit this already, but uh, it's probably bears repeating. And, um, you know, when you're in a position where I think I said earlier, you know, probably close to two out of five physicians are nearing retirement age. And, you know, it's not even a bad time to start. And when the, what I mean by that is they're 55 and older. And I think when you start having that open dialogue at that point, I think it's more my, my personal beliefs and what I've seen uh, in, in my career is that I think physicians, when you start talking to them when they're like 63, you know, or 64 or something like that, which by the way, I'll be in January. Uh, uh, so I get it. I get how they feel. But when you start talking to somebody then it's never really been discussed before, there's some of that that can creep in as like, oh, am I really that old? Do Am I really not that needed? Are you thinking about replacing, you know, so that can creep in. But I think if you start talking with physicians who are nearing that retirement age, those 55 group, because that there's a ton of them at 55 and older right now, all across the board, that if you start having conversations, then nobody's feeling threatened at 55. Nobody's expecting you to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to retire in two years. You know, you're there thinking, well, 10 years out, I guess, you know, it's probably not a bad idea to start thinking about that and start doing that. And then those are the kind of people that in my mind, as we discussed, somebody asked earlier, start engaging those people in some more of the leadership things, mentoring things and things to say, you know, we're in no hurry for you to ever retire. We hope you stay as long as you want. But, you know, there may come a day when you decide, you know what, I'm going to slow down. So it'd be great to know that. But in the meantime, love for you. I keep using the word appeal to their ego with saying, we'd love to have you. I know you you uh, think strongly of wanting to have some kind of legacy. Um, and you can't have a better legacy than helping us think about this going forward. And this group's going to keep going long after you and I are both gone, but just appealing to that side of them. But I think they're a lot less threatened to talk about retirement when you talk about that far in advance, as opposed to when the world's perception is you should be retiring next year. If, if Rick Jackson came to me tomorrow and said, yeah, so you're probably going to wrap it up in about a year, huh? <laughs> I'd be, I'd be a, whoa, wait a minute. I'm, I'm not quite ready yet, but uh, so I hope that helps. Again, that's just my perception. Um, and then, you know, when you think that uh, the stat that we threw out earlier, like 83% of physicians don't believe that the, their group or hospital even has a retention plan, mm -hmm. um, that's something that you could start working on immediately. And it doesn't take long to ramp those things up because first of all, you're putting a committee or a group together to do that and you're engaging the physicians right away. And in some cases you're having an open forum and you invite the medical staff to come to an open forum conversation to say, here's some things we're thinking about. What do you all think? Is there anything you'd like to add? So these are things that you can start thinking about ahead of time too. And once you get the retention plan, then you can start almost weaving retirement and secession planning into a retention plan. Just say it's a natural form of, uh, you know, evolution. It's this, you know, you start playing the Lion King and just show the circle of life and how this goes. It, it It's everything in life. It's a medical group, but it's just, you get older and, and things, things go south. So, you know, I, I just think there's a lot of ways you can go about doing it, but being proactive on those two things is probably the best. Okay. We have come up against time. So first of all, how can people reach you? Is there, is there, 
what's the best way? Is it LinkedIn? Is there an email? What's what's the best yeah, way? Because there are certain, a lot of questions here that we just have not been able to get to because there's just been so much engagement. Yeah, certainly reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the quickest and easy way. And plus, the being hooked up to to us on LinkedIn uh, will allow you probably to be able to have access to all of our studies and paperwork and things of that nature. And you know, we have a lot of experts in the organization for many different things. I'm just the guy that's been around the longest, so I'm, I'm kind of at the top of the food chain at this point. But uh, if you look me up, the last name, I'll spell for everybody uh, if it's not on there, S-T-A-J-D-U-H-A-R. Um, I think I'm the only Tony Stadahar in the world pretty much, so <laughs> it shouldn't be too tough to find me. Um, and my email, you certainly feel free to email me. It's T Stadahar, that same spelling, T Stadahar at jacksonphysiciansearch.com. Okay, that's great. It must show how much, how well I know you now, because I can spell your name without having to look it up. So that says something. When we, and I'll tell you, this is just a quick, funny story to end on, but uh, a little self-deprecation here. I, when we were decided, you know what, we had, we started the industry as Jackson and Coker in 1977. Um, I did not, but Rick Jackson did. Um, but when we decided, you know, it was time to separate from locum tenens. To, and so I said, okay, you know what, we've, we're doing it different. So we'll take the new name, Jackson Physician Search. And he goes, so what do you, we didn't have the name at that point. So he said, what do you want to name? And I said, I think Jackson and Stadahar has a nice ring to it. <laughs> and uh, his comment was, if you can find one person that can spell Stadahar, <laughs> we'll talk about it. <laughs> it's taken me three years, Tony, but I've got it down now. So thank you. Well, it's always a I pleasure. Wanna... Always. Thank you so much for a great presentation and great dialogue here and helping us understand the succession planning for physicians. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Take care. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Tony Stadahar. Also, thanks to MDVIP and to CareCloud for sponsoring this week's show. CareCloud's recent revenue cycle assessment uncovers billing mistakes so you can see how to claim every last dollar. Get your free assessment by visiting carecloud.com slash assessment. And MDVIP's fee-based wellness program provides a better, more personalized primary care experience for patients and physicians alike. Learn how your group can increase patient satisfaction and loyalty by visiting mdvip.com slash patient loyalty. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or you can find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe, and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com membership. Thanks.